The Guardian. A lot of people are so turned off by this election campaign that almost a million of them have already voted. Make it stop is their collective cry. The rest of us, well, we're hanging on in there. Hello, it's Catherine Murphy here, Deputy Political Editor of Guardian Australia, and you're listening to Australian Politics Weekly. We have a huge episode lined up for you today. Politicians are scrambling to make their final impression as we race full speed towards polling day on Saturday. Could Tony Abbott's careful, careful approach to this Everest climb get him over the line? Or is Kevin Rudd yet to conjure up a miracle? Later, we'll be wrapping this election with an all-star cast. Guardian Australia's own Lenore Taylor will be joined by political journalist Malcolm Farr and The Conversation's Michelle Grattan. Their thoughts on both parties' campaigns, how we sit in these final days. But first, Simon Jackman is Professor of Politics at Stanford University, California. He's known around the world as an expert polling analyst, our Nate Silver, if you like. This election, we're very lucky to have Simon home and have him writing for Guardian Australia. He joins me on the phone now from Sydney. Thanks for coming on Australian Politics Weekly. My pleasure. Now, the question I suppose we most need the answer to, is there any way that Kevin Rudd can win based on your assessment of the polls? Um, To be perfectly honest, no. (laughs) (laughs) Done and dusted, you reckon? The polling... In the last couple of weeks in particular, you know, I thought we were seeing uh, Labor hit a bottom, you know, just in the last week or two. But this very latest round of polling, you know, suggests that, no, actually the trend has, has been continuing. We're down now to about 53.47 and, and we're in the home stretch of the campaign. And it's just, you know, based on everything I've seen over the last couple of cycles in Australian politics you're not going to turn it around from here. And I think the answer is, have we hit bottom yet or is there still some more downside for Labor yet to come? But I think winning at this point is is, is way off the table at this point for mm-hmm. Labor. Mm-hmm. And there's been... Uh, I know you have a, a close interest in uh, the betting markets. I'm not a punter myself, so I never quite understand how, uh, how they all work. Uh-huh. But from a polling and data perspective, uh, I know that they pr- can provide a very accurate read of uh, how the voters are thinking and feeling. So take us through the betting markets at the moment. What are they telling us and do you reckon it's right? Oh, my goodness. Well, the, 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 the top-line markets, if you will, the, just the, the straight-up position uh, proposition will uh, which party will win the election you know i've never seen a more lopsided political betting market maybe the queensland and new south wales state elections where labor got absolutely thumped but you know in the last 24 hours or so um labor has hit 17 dollars on on cent centibet and uh and uh and sports bet but the coalition's at, you know, a dollar one, a dollar two. So that means if you invest a dollar and the coalition wins, you'd get back a dollar one. <laughs> you'd make one, literally one percent or two percent. So the top level story, the, the betting markets are as absolutely convinced of this as, as, you know, the implied probability there is about a 95 percent chance that the coalition is going to win on on Saturday. Now, they tend to track the polls, to be perfectly honest, and and there's a little bit of a debate about that. But, but, you know, my read of the evidence is that in in Australia, at least, those top-level betting markets, they've been following the poll trend down 
And as I've been putting out my poll aggregate and poll bludger over at Crikey's been putting out his, and we're all seeing the same data. And then you've got the seat-by-seat markets. And there the picture is a little um, less clear in, in the following sense, that the betting markets don't have as good a track record with picking seat by seat, and we don't have as much polling data there either. Mm-hmm. And there, though, the story, though, is nonetheless very grim for Labor. Right now, the betting markets are tipping Labor to lose 18 seats, mm-hmm. to take back Melbourne from the Greens, but the loss of 18 seats is, is pretty devastating. Yeah, well, one gain, one gain doesn't cancel out. Yeah, and, and, but the loss of 18 is, is just is very bad news for Labor. Um, there's no sign at all that the Queensland strategy mm-hmm. is working. Um, you know, so we're looking at a real blowout here. On the upside, the, you know, it's not inconceivable that the coalition wins, you know, 100 seats. Um, so I think that's on the high side. But, but, but Labor will struggle to win 60, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's reflected in the, in the betting markets that are, are not bad at getting the seat count, even though they haven't got a, a particularly sort of perfect track record at, at telling you which seat is going to go which way. They tend to get the, the overall seat count they don't do too badly there. And right now that's lining up at, at about somewhere around 90 uh, seats for the coalition. But I think there's a bit of wiggle there that, that, could, that could blow out to, you know, to 100 if it's a, a really bad last couple of days. Well, wiggle or not, 90, between 90 and 100 seats would be a pretty thumping majority. Yeah, yeah. And then at that point, I think, and this is the conversation I've been having around Sydney today with, with political friends is, you know, we're, we're certainly talking about a two-term proposition for, for, for an Abbott coalition government and then who leads Labor in the interim. And, and, and you know, the conversation is already about that. The, the outcome itself is, is, is just not in any question whatsoever. In, well, in terms of statistics, um, obviously miracles, as we know, happened. I think someone walked on water, but it, it seems unlikely, doesn't it? It's going to be fascinating, again, from the... We've got the election outcome itself, but on, on the polling nerd side of things, we've got this sort of just how much robo-polling got done in Australia this cycle. It's going to be really interesting to see, you know, who got it right and well, who got it wrong exactly. in the aftermath. Well, here's our collective nerd tip, right? Uh, Saturday, it's a robo-poll or bust. <laughs> yeah. Simon Jackman, Guardian Australia's polling analyst. And at the risk of exciting anyone, can I just say... Oh, what the heck does cement production have to do with... With Mr Abbott, you get served the main course, which is... An absolute charming compliment between friends. This election is about making a great country even better. When will you get to surplus? Well, we will get to surplus a hell of a lot of time well, before you, mate. I mean, I'll tell you why. The idea that this is somehow an abnormal condition is just wrong. I don't get that. What you guys do here in the media, it's just all show. It's not reality. You're listening to Australian Politics Weekly from Guardian Australia. I'm Catherine Murphy and thanks so much for your company. Joining me now is what could be described as the holy trinity of press gallery journalists. <laughs> Lenore was going to sing, but now she's not. No. <laughs> Michelle Grattan has covered some of the most significant stories in Australian politics. It's a distinguished career spanning how long, Cobber? 
a very long time, Catherine. <laughs> These days you can find her at The Conversation. Thanks for being here, Michelle. And Malcolm Farr is our other guest here at the podcast this week. He's another highly influential political journalist and author. He is currently the national political editor of news.com.au. Hey, Malcolm. Hello. And to round it out today, a woman who's no stranger to this podcast, Guardian Australia's political editor, Lenore Taylor. Always a pleasure. <laughs> we're a little digital circle, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> we are. We're like a knitting circle. <laughs> Let's kick off today uh, with uh, Kevin Rudd's comments on marriage equality from Q&A on Monday evening. If you think homosexuality is an unnatural condition, then frankly, I cannot agree with you based on any element of the science. And therefore, if a person's sexuality is as they are made, then you've got to ask the second question. Should therefore their loving relationships be legally recognised? And the conclusion I've reached is that they should. And it was the product of some many, many months and years of reflection in good Christian conscience. Big thumbs up on social media, Malcolm, uh, watching Q&A. Just one simple question, though. Does it work for Rudd? I think it does. I think there's a bit of a conviction dividend there, isn't it, for uh, the Prime Minister? When he came or came out, I don't know if that's the term, <laughs> but when he, when he declared himself uh, in favour of gay marriage some three months or so ago, uh, I, in my innate cynicism, thought there was a political imperative there. He wanted to contrast himself with not only Julia Gillard but with Tony Abbott. And during the first debate, he was insistent that a question be asked on, uh, on gay marriage and he, he, he offered that a, a return Rudd government would legislate on it within the first 100 days. Last night, he sounded like uh, it wasn't just a political uh, manoeuvre. It sounded like he really believed it and he went further than he has previously, went essentially is saying being gay is natural, you don't choose to do it. Uh, that will rub a lot of people up the wrong way. But, as I say, there might be this conviction uh, dividend at play here. Kevin Rudd might actually believe what he's saying. And well, he also got to fight scripture with scripture in a sort mm. of Jed Bartlett kind of way, which was quite convincing. Yeah, mm. and that sort of authenticity or, or plain speaking, shall we say, is a perfect segue uh, for Fiona Scott. Uh, who's some, something of a human hashtag, I think, in this election campaign, the Liberal campaign in Western Sydney. Now, she made another uh, contribution to the election campaign, uh, essentially suggesting that asylum seekers cause traffic jams in Western Sydney. How much fun is the M4 in peak hour? It's not fun at all. And, you know, you imagine a mum, you know, it's a classic example. Uh, trying to be back for a six o'clock pickup from daycare and every minute you're late you're getting charged now you multiply that by a couple of kids it means that when you think of overcrowding it becomes an issue for people it really does well if it was plain speaking it was bloody difficult to understand i think the immigration spokesman scott morrison tried to sort of rescue the situation today by saying that it was a broader population question but that doesn't really make sense either since most of the recently arrived asylum seekers are sitting under the no advantage test on 89% of new start in an unfurnished flat with no work rights which makes it pretty unlikely that you they're would, driving down the M4 you in Tarago you would right <laughs> <laughs> yes possibly they're not in the Tarago um 
now I really wanted you guys on this final podcast because uh, we've uh, we have something significant in common. We've all left our careers, as it were, in newspapers. We are all uh, digital journalists, and we're sort of prosecuting that front in our profession. David Carr from the New York Times wrote a very interesting piece uh, this week about political coverage in the recent uh, US election. He noted that uh, boys on the bus, which is a term we're familiar with in terms of campaign coverage, had been replaced by this sort of roiling, rolling, tweeting mass where there was no narrative, there were only these blips and all of that sort of thing. I think that would that trend is familiar to our listeners. So I want to w- throw a question to each of you, and uh, I think we'll start with you, Mel. Um, in that environment, that's our world. We know it's our world. How do we do good work in that world? I think it's the possibilities are, are huge and they're very exciting. There are traps there, though. The idea of tweeting for tweeting's sake... Uh, is a very dangerous thing for for journalists, particularly young journalists, to get into because just because you tweeted something doesn't mean it's relevant, meaningful, informative <laughs> or even are you, interesting. Are you suggesting that I tweet, therefore I am, is, is, not, a, is not a truth? You are. Uh, well, you as a young journalist, and Lord knows we know that, uh, you, you wouldn't tweet some of the stuff that has been tweeted from... I mean, from all areas, it, it's you know it's almost what I did in my holiday stuff, uh, and I think if that gets accepted as campaign coverage, we're in a bit of trouble. Okay, so maybe tweet less is Malcolm's maxim. Well, Michelle. more meaningfully. Yeah, yeah. Michelle, thoughts? I think this goes in two directions. On one hand, there's no doubt that the whole 24-hour news cycle, the constant repetition and re-showing of things, of what people have said, of incidents in the campaign, has a defining uh, impression on the campaign. It really shapes how things play out all day, every day. On the other hand, I think that there is less opportunity for really defining pieces because everything is so fragmented so that you don't really have the influence coming from particular pieces of writing. One example, the fact-checking, which has become a feature of this campaign and is a new feature in our campaigns, has produced some quite interesting results, including the total discrediting of Kevin Rudd's $70 billion hole in Abbott's costings, which he's used time and time again. And yet it's as if that fact has not been checked, has not been discredited. Kevin Rudd is still using the $70 billion. We saw him on Q&A on Monday, using it twice, pulled up twice, but totally dismissing the possibility that it could be wrong. So the new sort of news coverage is is both bad and good, I think. Mm-hmm. So facts, facts, which is a, always a brilliant segue to Lenore. How do, we, how do we assert them and how do we make them matter? Well, I do think that a digital platform gives you the opportunity in this kind of rolling storm cloud of tweets and stories and stuff to actually take evidence and nail it down and get it out quickly with references back to the source material so that you can kind of anchor some of this stuff. But to do that, you have to be willing to 
say what the evidence is. So if Kevin Rudd says it's black and Tony Abbott says it's white and you know it's pink, you put your marker in the ground and you say that it's pink. Mm -hmm. It's not a he said, she said story if there's evidence to the contrary. And I think a digital platform gives you the ability to do that fast and to do it with reference back to primary sources. But, but you're, is... you're talking about actually the, the the boys and girls in the bus, aren't you? Well, yes. I, I'm talking about two things. I'm talking about the echo chamber that, that, that the boys and ladies on the bus create through their constant rolling coverage of, I went to the, the cafe and old Kevin mm. Rudd said uh, I, I kicked the, the horse or whatever. I'm talking about that. And then I'm talking about the general environment in which we but aren't we all in a virtual bus now? <laughs> there are those who are in the physical bus and the, the rest of us who are in the virtual bus. Can the wheels fall off the virtual bus? Well, exactly. All I know is I want to get off the bus. But anyway, uh, look, we could, we could do this for the whole podcast and it would be fascinating, but uh, we better give the listeners some of the campaign. What is Tony Abbott's campaign about, Malcolm? It's about realising he's... He's needed to do very little to get elected. It's about making sure he does very little and allowing the Labor Party to pull itself apart as it has for the past six years. And in terms of an exercise in sustained discipline, it's been quite a wonder to behold. Mm, Small target all the time. Michelle? Well, it's obviously about not being Labor and uh, distancing the coalition from what he would define as bad government. But I think it has also been about trying to reassure the public because Tony Abbott, of course, is aware as anyone that people don't particularly like him, warm to him, or at least they haven't over the past uh, three or four years, that perhaps is changing a little bit as we see the polls changing in terms of approval, but he feels the need, has a need, to tell people that it's safe to change, that, yes, they want to move away from Labor, but it won't all be as bad if they move to the Coalition. OK, so reassurance, Lenore. What she said, I agree with <laughs> Beautifully succinct. All right, let's move around the circle in the opposite direction. Lenore, you can take this first. Uh, do any of us know what Labor's campaign is about yet? Uh, it's become slightly clearer in the last week. It's about protecting jobs versus Tony Abbott's cuts or the cuts that Labor alleges Tony Abbott's going to make mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, the suggestion that remember what you didn't like about Tony Abbott, the opposite of what Michelle was just saying, the opposite message. Remember, you didn't like him. Remember, remember, remember. Well, you know, don't vote for him if you didn't like him. That's sort of it in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. It is, however, in many ways utterly inexplicable. I mean, what the train that our great-grandchildren might get on was about, what the Northern Australia thing was about, all of that is... Jobs for our grandchildren. ...pretty much inexplicable. And the thing that I find hardest to understand is this $70 billion cut mantra because, really, what Tony Abbott has done is destroy Labor's economic credibility or any credit Labor might get for economic management with the whole debt and deficit hoo-ha and then 
during the campaign kind of crab walk away from that and basically say his fiscal policy is not actually going to be much different from Labor's. He's not going to get back to surplus any sooner. And I kind of suspect that the reason he's been reluctant to release detailed year-by-year costings is to hide that fact much more than to hide any great big scary cuts to health and education, which makes that particular part of Labor's campaign the least understandable for me. <laughs> yeah, well, you wrote uh, very beautifully about that over the weekend. Michelle, thoughts? I think Labor started out thinking that its best hope was to run a presidential campaign around Kevin Rudd. And, of course, he had a, a narrative of, of jobs and other things. But it quickly became pretty clear that while people had romanticised Rudd, were glad to see him back, they had another look at him, they weren't particularly impressed second time round and therefore the presidential approach clearly faltered. But Rudd was still very uh, dominant, obviously, in determining the uh, direction of this campaign and I think we see his personal hand in these big ideas which the opposition immediately labelled thought bubbles, which when you're not on a high just fall flat Hence the reaction to moving the Navy to the tax breaks for the North when he clearly didn't have that policy worked out. A lot of this was too clever by half. Big ideas that you don't have to pay for because they're beyond the budgetary period. They're out in the never-never. And therefore, as the, the steam went out of this campaign, the ideas looked less big ideas and more just fragmentary pieces out of nowhere. But the campaign launch, Malcolm Rudd, I think, over the last sort of 48 hours has looked like he's had a bit of his mojo back. He sort of seems to be landing the talking points a bit more effectively. Uh, what do you think in this final week? Yeah, he, he has, but it's taken him a long time to get there. Look, I, I, I agree with Michelle, and if I could put it in a more colloquial fashion, I, I think there was a, a miscalculation about Rudd's electoral appeal. Uh, I think a lot of his popularity was that of a quasi-celebrity. Look, look, Mum, there's a guy who eats his earwax in Parliament. <laughs> uh, 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 you know, the guy who went to uh, the strip club in New York, uh, uh, the mm. guy who was rude to an air, uh, an air hostess, whatever it was, had very little to do with Rudd's electability. And I think we've, we discovered that in the first few weeks, I think Kevin Rudd and his supporters thought there would be voters lying down in the street so that he could walk over him. In fact, they were <laughs> running away from him uh, uh, more than not. And all the selfies business, he, he looked like a guy trying to crash a schoolies week, didn't he? Imagine Kevin Rudd at schoolies. Well he, he, well, he did. He didn't look particularly presidential, as, as Michelle said, and I think it just all collapsed there. Now he's come back to some semblance of competence, but With, too late. Without being quite that unkind, it might also no, have been no, that... That wasn't the... unkind. That was... <laughs> Crashing schoolies week? Um, I think well, no it one, will stay in your mind. No, no, no one has said goodies versus baddies. We haven't. Or but I, I do wonder whether there was also a sort of nostalgia in the minds of the electorates for how they felt in 2007 when they elected Labor and it felt like politics was optimistic and it was going to be different and things were going to change. And they associated that feeling with Kevin Rudd 
But when he came back, they remembered all the other stuff that happened afterwards. You know, I wonder whether there was a bit of nostalgia in where he sat in the polls before he came back. Before, yeah, before. Um, Now, I'm determined we'll deliver one service to the listeners of the podcast here, uh, that we will uh, not be entirely focused on campaign dynamics and that we will amongst ourselves identify... In the event that Tony Abbott wins on the weekend, and I'm not calling it until it's done, let's nominate one point of significant difference between a a Prime Minister Abbott and a Prime Minister Rudd in terms of a policy. What is likely to change, Malcolm? Well, clearly one of the two big policies that Tony Abbott has ridden for the last three years is uh, climate change. He's nominated this election as a referendum on climate change measures. And he will go ahead with, and I I believe succeed, in dismantling carbon pricing. Now, the thing is, Tony Abbott, to all evidence, doesn't really care about climate change. Uh, He's been riding this issue because it's a very good uh, vehicle for attacking Kevin Rudd on the base, or the Labor Party in general, on the basis of uh, lack of trustworthiness uh, with Julia Gillard's no carbon tax, uh, on the basis of uh, uh, wrecking the economy, making it harder for business, making it more expensive to run a household. He's made all these claims, and I really think that the actual, uh, actually combating climate change is right down the bottom of the list of things he wants to do with this policy. So that would be a huge change in Australian uh, politics and political thinking if we essentially dropped any notion of seriously taking on uh, uh, global warming, um, which Tony Abbott's direct action policy seems to be all about. Yeah. Okay, so climate, that's a key point of difference, Michelle? Well, I think uh, what you would find is that across the board of policies, while Tony Abbott has made himself a, a small target, you would see differences of degree on a whole lot of things. Clearly, the mining tax the carbon tax, these sorts of things are going to be very obvious points of difference, but you'd see difference of emphasis on various other areas, health and education and so on. But it's also important that there's convergence on a number of these areas as well. So looking ahead, I think you know that if there's a new government, yes, Australia changes whenever there's a new government, but it's often hard to predict beforehand just how much it changes or precisely in what direction. Mm. Well, governments grow into themselves. There are continuities and discontinuities, not always easy to foretell exactly what they will be. And I think in terms of mainstream issues, Tony Abbott is more centrist than a lot of his critics think. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think on some of the issues that Tony Abbott has tried to not fight this election on, there will, however, be quite profound changes. For example, education. Mm. We haven't mm. heard a lot about higher education, and I suspect there are changes in mind there. And even for schools education, where he says he's now on a unity ticket on Gonski with Labor, with the Labor Party, he hasn't committed to the long-term funding. And more importantly, there are these sort of social and cultural changes to the national curriculum and what is taught in schools. This idea of independent public schools. He wants a quarter of public schools to be independent public schools 
by the end of the first term. Those things make quite profound mm. changes to mm. people's lives, to I the agree. way kids learn. And, you know, and I think that would be a big change that we haven't really talked all that much about because he hasn't wanted to made, make an issue of it. Well, and also there, there's been this impression created with uh, matching the Gonski funding that, that there's nothing to see in education and mm. that, as you point out, is quite incorrect. The, the big change, of course, is we'll probably have a, a government in its own right. Yes, majority went, government, remember majority, that? How weird is that? <laughs> that is crazy. But there's always the Senate. <laughs> Which that probably is going to be crazy. Uh, yeah. Now, well oh, done, Michelle, yeah. well done. What the per- perfect segue. Now, let's close out because I'm conscious of time. On the Senate and on uh, a last prediction. Now, polling is obviously not good for Labor. One question on the Senate, uh, an answer from everyone. Can Tony Abbott uh, control it outright or with uh, another bunch of kingmakers in essence? Question one. Question two, do any of us think, uh, as Kevin Rudd has been styling himself over the last few days, that he can be Paul Keating in 1993? Anyone jump in? No. No. No, I don't think he can be. Over. Okay. There's question two answered. <laughs> okay. We've done question two. Senate? On, on question one, I don't think Tony Abbott can control the Senate in his own right. It's possible that he could control the Senate with a collection of centrist or centre-right uh, senators. That would make for pretty interesting reporting given who they might be. <laughs> yes, and exactly. I don't think we should assume that they would necessarily support straight up all elements of his agenda, for example, his direct action climate policy. I think Senator Nick Xenophon, who is likely to be re-elected, has been doing some work cultivating his alliance with the DLP Victorian Senator John Madigan, and I think he would want to see some quite significant changes to make that policy more effective, just as one example that even if the Greens lost the balance of power in the Senate, which I don't think is necessarily going to happen but could happen, it isn't all going to be plain sailing for an Abbott government. Mm, Well, implementation really is. Malcolm? Look, uh, we don't know how much insurance voters are going to want to take out on the Senate, uh, and we don't know how potent Clive Palmer's campaign is, mm. although I, I'm mm. sure you're not going to see a big sweeping Palmer ticket elected. It's hard to poll them properly, though. Yeah. This, is the, this is the trouble. We really don't know with, with Palmer and Catter and those candidates how the they're travelling. And the great disaffection mm. in the electorate. How, like, Given that people really want to vote none of the above, maybe Palmer is a default option mm, for none possibly. of the above. Well, anyway. well he's, he's spending a lot of money saying how attractive he and his policies are. Mm. Well, well, I think well, it's an intriguing question as to whether we're more likely to get a Queensland senator who's uh, from Palmer or Catter. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and what the implications of that well, I think I think the implications are Michelle will be very busy. Malcolm, yeah, were you yeah. finished in your, in your I, analysis? Yeah, look, but look, I, I, it doesn't happen very often that a government has control of the Senate as well, and I presume that even even with the lower house so polarised, I think in the, this uh, occasion there won't be an Abbott uh, uh, Senate uh, either. Mm-hmm. Not both houses, Michelle. I agree that uh, the Liberals, uh, the Coalition, won't get control of the Senate in its own right. I think it's very hard to know whether it's possible the Greens will hang on with uh, sole balance of power or whether it will go to the uh, the smaller collection of uh, people who lean to the right. If it does, then obviously Tony Abbott would have a better chance of getting things through, but it would be a hell of a negotiating experience and you wonder whether he'd do it himself or 
dedicated ministers, especially to these people. Well, I think we saw John Howard do that for a period of we time did. with the hats, didn't we, Michelle? I think we all lived through that. Now, I lied, I lied. It wasn't the last question because I forgot the funniest one. And obviously we have to do that. Now, I need everybody's vote on the stupidest policy of this election. Malcolm Farr. Oh, look, spending $20 million buying used fishing boats in Indonesia has <laughs> got to be up there. I mean, it really has got to be up there. We needn't worry about the money being spent because it will never happen. No, it was wacky, wasn't it, Michelle? I'd say that policy, and to be even-handed, I think it was pretty rash to be uh, wanting to move all those uh, bigger boats out of Garden Island. <laughs> I liked both those two. I also liked the Northern Australian policy with for a lower tax rate for companies in uh, the Northern Territory, oh, yes, of course, Northern which exposure. John Howard and Peter Costello successfully resisted when the National Party suggested it for you know nigh on a decade, and Kevin Rudd dreamt up and supported you know in the space of I don't know five minutes. Okay, well, fellow Digimons, <laughs> thanks for joining me. It's been great. Thanks, We're up all night. The beef rub. He's up for a new pledge in blood. Don't just say got stuck in the mud. And he's up all night to get hockey. I'm up all right. Stop the bars. We're up all right. Count the votes. That's all we have time for today. My thanks to Malcolm Farr, to Michelle Grattan and to Lenore Taylor. And thanks also to our in-house polling expert, Simon Jackman. The producer of this podcast is the lovely Mike Williams. I'm Catherine Murphy. If you're a Twitter person, you can find me there at Murfaroo. You can also find me uh, in my 10-minute updates on our Politics Live blog at Guardian Australia for the remainder of the campaign. You've been listening to Australian Politics Weekly. Join us next week for the full wash-up of the 2013 election battle. That'll be the final episode in our election series next week. Bye for now. The Guardian.